Last week, we began a series called Dealing with Yesterday, and it's a conversation that is an attempt to make sense of the past. It's an important conversation because, as we talked about last week, there's really nothing we can do about the past. We can make changes in our life in the moment. We can make changes in anticipation of the future, but the past is the past. Now, every one of us have great memories, moments when things went well, and just thinking back on those brings a smile to our faces. But yesterdays also have moments of pain, sometimes moments of deep pain and difficulty, and as we talked about last week, sometimes deep regret. For many of us, the source of pain is not something that happened, but something that didn't. It's pain that comes from the hopes and dreams that once filled our hearts with anticipation for the future, but now the future's here and we're no closer to those seeing those dreams fulfilled than we were maybe five, ten, or more years ago. Or worse, we now know that the dream we once had for our lives will not and cannot happen. Despite our earnest prayers, we're left with empty hands, wondering why we must continue to wait. Could not God give us this one little thing? Can't God see our hearts and that something we're asking for is good and true and beautiful? And the longer this goes on, the more that we wonder what we're to do with these unfulfilled dreams in our lives. It even makes us question what we've read in the Bible. What about the promises that God has given us? Let me just give you a few examples. And from Psalm 37, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Or from Psalm 34, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or Psalm 84, no good thing does he, that is God, withhold from those who walk, whose walk is blameless. Or from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? What I've observed is that all people are dreamers. It's part of what it is to be human. To imagine what life could be like if one, two, or three things were just a little bit different in our lives. If only we imagine we were healthier than we might be. We were wealthier or successful. If we were married or even famous or powerful or even something much simpler, like had a new car. Children are really great dreamers. Yesterday, a friend of mine tweeted on Twitter um, that his six-year-old had shared his, her career plans with him in the morning at breakfast, that she intended to be a scientist, a princess, and a mom. And I have to admit that my own childhood dreams uh, were to win an Olympic gold medal in the 1,500 meters and to be a U.S. senator. I'm still bummed about the first dream, but I am incredibly grateful that God said no to the second. Sure, even as adults, we have some pretty wacky dreams, and yet many, for many of us, our dreams are fairly reasonable. And we're not asking God for a million dollars or to be the CEO of our company. All we want to do is be married or have a child or a good job in something we've trained for and would love to do. But it doesn't take long in life for us to come face to face with the reality that at least some of our dreams will never come true. And worse, some of our dreams that do come true later turn out to be nightmares. Now, if you're young, you console yourself with the thought that this is just a temporary setback on the way to something better. But if you're not so young, you know better. In fact, you may have become cynical and given up altogether on dreams. I'll never be that foolish again, you might say. Doing what you can to protect yourself from disappointment. And I know that sort of cynicism can be tempting, but I want to use today to steer you in another direction actually several directions that come from insights the Bible has for us on this difficult topic. 
That's because I deeply believe that hope, hope now and hope for the future, is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. And yet we need to understand what that hope actually looks like. And to do so, we have to undergo a change of mind in how we think about our dreams. First, though, let me give a disclaimer. Uh, last week, we talked about regret. And immediately after both services, people came up to me with questions and comments. And some of the comments were profound, things that I wish I'd thought about when I was putting together last week's talk. All week, I've been thinking about not only this week, but last week. I've been writing notes and throwing them in the file from last week if I ever someday return to that topic in the future. And that's because there's so much that can be said about these topics that we're in this series on, about our yesterdays. And 25 minutes isn't just enough time to cover every dimension of this or any of the other deep and important topics. And I'd love to tell you that I have all the answers, but I don't. And I'm not even sure that I've framed all the questions in quite the right way. That said, I do think that what I have today can be helpful for us. Even though we don't have all the answers we might want, we have enough that we can go on. We have what we need to live with hope in a way that pleases God. So I want to start by challenging our common understanding of dreams. An idea that we've picked up, not I believe from the Bible, but from the culture around us. You see, our notion of dreams, whether you want to call it the American dream or the overused idea that we tell teenagers to dream big or follow your dreams, the idea here is that life owes us something. That if we think big enough and work hard enough, we will achieve our dreams and find satisfaction and happiness. It's an idea that's deeply rooted in our secular culture, but unfortunately also in our Christian subculture. The idea is that we should be able to find satisfaction here on earth. Many, especially those who call themselves Christians, understand that it's not to be just a material satisfaction, but something spiritual, that we should be completely satisfied with our life in Christ here on earth. And it sounds good, doesn't it? But let me tell you something that at first may sound heretical, but that is that God may not want you to be satisfied, at least not yet. Our dreams are important, but we should not expect that they will all be fulfilled in the here and now, at least not in full while we're living here on earth. And so with that as a teaser, I want to start with some practical thoughts about how we can think about unfulfilled dreams in our lives. And it shouldn't take more than a moment's reflection to realize that it probably wouldn't be a good idea if every dream we've ever had came true. That's because some dreams should never have been dreamed at all. They might be selfish or silly or dreams that if we just took a moment to reflect on, we'd think, oh, that's not such a great idea. And I've certainly had my share of dreams like that. And not just as a child. And I'd give you an example, but it'd be a little bit too embarrassing for me to do. But let me give you an example from the Bible. One of uh, the mothers of uh, Jesus' disciples, in fact, she was the mother of two of his disciples, James and John, once came to Jesus with a request in Matthew chapter 20. And what she asked was, when you go to your kingdom, can one of my sons sit on your right hand and the other sit on your left in positions of honor? She asked that honestly, and Jesus could have sort of, well, he did in some ways redirect her. He said, you know, that's not really my position to, uh, God will do that. She said, he said, but then he said, essentially, that this is a grasp for power. And then he used the moment as a teachable time to tell his disciples and this mother that the kingdom of God is not about grasping for power, but about serving others. So some dreams shouldn't have been dreamed. 
Other dreams aren't just silly or selfish. They're downright dangerous. In other words, in God's mercy, some dreams remain unfulfilled because they wouldn't have been good for us. They might have ruined our lives or maybe the lives of those around us. In other words, sometimes God protects us from ourselves. Another category is the times that God may want to change or redirect our dreams. There's a story in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Ruth, about a woman named Naomi. Naomi and her husband are living in Israel. It's a time of famine. They go to a neighboring country, the country of Moab, where there's food. And there they live for a number of years. While they're there, she has two sons. Those sons grow up. They marry Moabite women. And then her husband dies. And then not long after, both of her sons die. And she is a widow, and she is destitute. And in the meantime, things have recovered in Israel. They now have food there, so she decides to return. But she's a shattered woman. She's a widow, deprived of her sons and any grandchildren that she might have anticipated and hoped for. And so she decides to return. But one of her daughters-in-law, a woman named Ruth, insists upon going with her. Now understand this complicated Naomi's life. It made it much more difficult But she insists on going, so the two of them return to Israel. I won't tell you all the story. It's a great story. You should read it. But one of the things that happens is by the end of the story, we find that because of this return to Israel, this redirection of plans for her her life, Naomi and Ruth become a part of both the genealogy of King David and Jesus. Still another reason is that sometimes our dreams are simply deferred. That is, we need to wait. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, there is, in Hebrews chapter 11, a listing with short summaries of more than a dozen characters of the Old Testament who were examples of great faith. And the author of Hebrews holds these examples up as people who we should follow. And here's what he says about these these folks men and women, he says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. In other words, these folks had dreams, dreams that were given them by God, dreams that they put faith in God in order to see him fulfill. And they were not fulfilled for the most part in their lifetime. You see, it's possible that some of our dreams will be fulfilled in the future, And some of them may be fulfilled after we are gone. Sometimes the reason our dreams are unfulfilled is because God has a greater purpose. St. Paul was once in a great deal of trouble. He was in prison in Rome, the capital city, being held in jail. And people all over the ancient world, Christians, were praying for him, praying that he would be released. But nothing happened. He stayed right where he was. A year or so later, he wrote to some friends of his, some of those who were praying for him, who were living in a place called Philippi. It's a place that he had gone and started a church in. And in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he gave them a perspective that he'd gained after being in prison but wanting to be out. And he said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So Paul wanted out. The other Christians wanted him out. But for some reason, God had him there, and he later came to see that that gave him opportunity to meet with and rub shoulders with people he otherwise would not have been able to share the good news of Jesus, people in authority. 
And it also gave confidence to the other Christians that if Paul can continue to share Jesus while he's incarcerated, we too can do the same thing. What he saw is that prison increased his effectiveness, not decreased it. So as awful as the conditions may have been, he saw that God had something even greater for him to do than securing his release from prison. Finally, although really we could go on and on because I think there are many other reasons to think about dreams in new ways, is that sometimes our dreams remain unfulfilled and we simply don't know why. Again, another example from St. Paul. It's in a letter that he wrote to some Christians in Corinth. And he told them about a time when he prayed that something might be removed. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. Some uh, believe it was a physical condition, maybe that his eyes were bad. Um, Others believe that it might have been a character issue that he was struggling with. I read one author who suggested that the struggle he had was pride. Paul was a brilliant man and perhaps he was a proud man and he struggled with that, knowing it was wrong. Whatever it was, the difficulty, it wasn't removed. And he had to muddle along struggling with it. He had to learn to trust God in the midst of it. And many of us have to do the same thing. Now, before we move on to the next section, I want to also mention one other difficulty we face, and that is when our dreams are fulfilled, but we end up feeling let down, disappointed, and somehow unfulfilled. We think that we'll be happy if God would just give us our dream, which might be something material like a home or a new car, might be a career, a promotion, or a big year-end bonus, or an industry award. And then we get whatever it is that we may have dreamed of, and we find out that it doesn't satisfy. In fact, sometimes it leaves us just craving more. It's then that we learn that stuff and public praise and success don't satisfy in the way that we expected. In a moment, we'll explore why, but that's something we need to come to terms with. So you might ask then, what are your unfulfilled dreams? What is it that you think would make you happy and satisfy you? And right about now, after listening to some of this, you might be thinking, ah, I need to rethink that list. Maybe there are some things that have been on that list for a long time that need to be crossed off, that really wouldn't be good for us, or that we really don't need. But it also could be said that if you look at the list, you say, well, those are good things. And it makes it even just a little bit more painful to be reminded of something that you've long hoped for, something you know that would be good for you, and good for others, that would make God look good. And you want to ask God, is it really too hard for you? Couldn't you just come through on this for me? Because, you know, whatever it might be, a spouse or a job, or for a grown child that you dearly love to come back to Jesus, a modest house or enough money to retire, or for God to bring back a wayward spouse. There are some who say that God promises to meet every dream that we have. Some will tell you that all you have to do is enough faith and presto, you'll have what you want. Others will tell you that you need to get the words right. You need to know the spiritual abracadabra in order to persuade God to come through. But I'll tell you that they're wrong. That's because God never promised to fulfill every dream that we have. He never promised to meet all our longings in this life. Instead, he offers something much deeper. He offers us himself. You see, God has made us for himself. He's made us with a desire not just for stuff or success or power, but to know him in an intimate and personal way. God's not just a means to an end. He is the end. Nothing else, no one else can satisfy the longings of our hearts. So above all, we must pursue God. We cannot let the things of this world, as good as they are, take center place in our hearts. Instead, we must put God first. Instead of trying to conform him to our preferences, 
We must love him as he is, surrendering ourselves to him and finding in him the source of unspeakable joy. And that means being open to having our dreams and desires changed, to allow God to replace the world's values that have so shaped us so that we might see the true worth of everything. The Christian story is that faith cannot be reduced to knowing facts about God. Now, there's some basic information we need to know, but more importantly, we need to be told and we need to understand that we can know God personally just as we know a friend, that we can see the world around us as it really is and see that the spiritual world is much more real and satisfying than the material world so many of us have put our trust in. Psalm 84 gives the words of a poet who saw God as the center of his life. Let me just share it with you a few uh, words that he has as he describes this. He says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near you. Lord God Almighty, my King and my God, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now let me just say, though, that this idea can also lead to another mistaken idea, uh, an idea that, material, that while material things can't satisfy, success and power and popularity won't make us happy, but surely God does, and all I need is God. And let me say that is partly true but not completely, at least not here on earth. So hang with me for just a moment while I explain. The truth is, is that nothing on earth quite satisfies. The joys, in, though, that we experience here on earth do point us to the true source of joy and happiness, and that is the hope of heaven. Years ago, I got to know a, a young mom. She had lost a child to a horrible illness, and so when we first met, she graciously agreed to share her son's story with me, the story of his life, of his illness, and his death, and how she had grown closer to God in the midst of all of that. And then, not long after, she faced another unspeakable tragedy. She lost her husband, leaving her as both grieving her son and her husband, and needing to pick up the pieces to raise her remaining two children. As we prepared for the funeral, we talked openly of heaven. She talked about how she expected to live a long life. She was young. But her perspective on this world, she said, had changed. She thought now more longingly of heaven. She was very clear with me. She wasn't in a rush to get there. But to see heaven, she said, not this world as my true hope. I then shared with her my growing conviction that our culture undervalues the hope of heaven. In part, I think that's because the image we have of heaven is of harps and clouds and guys in white, white robes, and it seems odd and unattractive. That's a caricature, but the reason I really think we struggle to describe heaven is because it's undescribable. It's a place of ultimate beauty, complete joy, and boundless love. It is beyond description, and so it's hard for us to even grasp how great it will be. But there's also another challenge, and that is that in the last hundred years or so, we have minimized many of the hardships that people around the world have faced in past generations. We have created comfort that they once thought unimaginable, and much of this is good. I think part of our calling as Christians is to fight the disease, to reduce hardship, but it has had an unintended consequence, and that is to give us the illusion that we can create heaven here on earth. 
A hundred years ago, in a world that lacked the comforts we now take for granted, a world touched more often by tragedy, heaven seemed much more real and attractive. Folks living then thought that as good as life can be, that we have been created for a different, far better world to come, a completely biblical message. Our conviction about heaven should encourage us to take the long view. We need to develop an eternal perspective that this world is not all that there is. In fact, it's not even all that great a world after all. The hope of heaven should permeate our lives. We should live our lives by the values of the kingdom of God, looking forward to what will soon be for us. In our early years as a church, about five years before I had a conversation with that young mother, um, that grieving widow, a 20-something who was attending City Church at the time came to see me. And he complained that we were, we were teaching what he called evacuation theology, that we were overemphasizing heaven and not talking enough about making a difference in the world. Now, I was a little puzzled by that criticism in part because we try, I try, to balance both parts of Jesus' message. In fact, we do that in our purpose statement, love God, love others. But he was adamant. He said Christians talk way too much about what he called pie in the sky and not enough about living in the moment. It wasn't until later that I realized something about my young friend. First of all, he was young, he was healthy, he had a girlfriend who would later become his wife, he was finishing grad school, he had every expectation he would soon get a good job, buy a house and hang out, hang out eating vegan meals with his hipster friends. Life was good for him and all his dreams were coming true. It's no wonder he thought that talking about heaven was irrelevant. But I knew that at that very same moment, right here at City Church, were those who had once been that young man, full of hopes and dreams, and now those dreams had turned to dust. And for them, the, that evacuation bit, the hope of heaven, was really important. This world is full of amazing things. We can expect from time to time to experience unbelievable joy. But it is also true that this world will not satisfy and that is when we need to know that we have been created by a God to know him and not just experience his blessings. And that we will not fully experience the full reality of his presence and goodness until Christ returns and we go to be with him in that new heaven and new earth when they come together in a place where there are no tears, no sadness, no death, and no dying. A place of unspeakable joy and deep satisfaction. Something we only see a glimpse of now. C.S. Lewis once said that when we find ourselves with a desire that nothing this, in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for a, another world. We have desires. Some lead us to dream, and some of these dreams come true, and some do not. It is our experience that even those that, that may come true don't completely satisfy. So when our dreams fail to materialize, we know that we can still trust God. Trust God because some of our unfulfilled dreams wouldn't have been good for us. Others because God may want to redirect or change our desires. A few are deferred dreams that may come true at some point in our lives or maybe will come true after we are gone. And God does not fulfill, sometimes does change a dream into something that has a greater purpose. But sometimes our dreams remain unfulfilled and we don't know why. Regardless of the answer, we know that we can trust God in his infinite wisdom, that God can weave things together for good. Then we know that we can go to God, loving him for who he is, not for what he can do for us. We're not guaranteed that our dreams will become a reality, but we are promised that God will meet us in our disappointment. 
And we always remember, regardless of what may happen to us here on this, this earth, that one day we will go to be with him. And when we do, we will find joy and satisfaction that we have been longing for from the moment we took our first breath. This means that we can leave the past to his infinite mercy, the future to his divine providence, and the present wholly to his love and grace. Let's pray. Father, you have created us to be dreamers. And while in some ways those dreams are only partially realized here on earth, sometimes it, it's uh, starkly, uh, we starkly realize the, the unfulfilled nature of many of our dreams. And yet, Father, you intend to fulfill them, not here, but when we go to be with you. We see now, in part, something that we will one day realize in full. Help us to seek you, to put you at the center of our lives, to trust you with our lives, to do what we can um, in the moment, but to remember that one day we will go to be with you, and then we will experience the joy that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.